One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and our new political slogan, MEGA, make everything good again. <laughs> Today, what the F is up with political leadership and why does it seem to suck? And a provincial bid for immigration autonomy from an institution with a 2.7 million applicant backlog. Guys, that's a lot of people. Joining me this week after way too long of a hiatus, Jessica and Sandhu, who is now running for Brampton City Council in Ward 7 and 8. We missed you, man. Yeah, but I'm uh, connected with the voters on the ground. <laughs> You love the voters more than us? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Look, I'm I'm here because of the residents of this fine city. <laughs> Riley Yesno, our beloved public speaker, academic, researcher, and writer at UFT PhD candidate. Hello. Hello. And our eyes and ears in the East Coast, Drew Brown, editor-in-chief of The Independent. Welcome back. It is lovely to be here. <laughs> Let's get into it. So there's been a global ripple of failed democratic leadership. Boris Johnson stepped down as the UK prime minister. Gotabia Rajapaksha has stepped down as Sri Lanka's president after protesters raided the president's home. And Japan's former prime minister Shinzo Abe died after being shot at a political campaign event. That ripple, we're feeling it here too. It feels like we've hit a massive brick wall with leadership. Political parties are jumping from one candidate to the next, hoping that someone will stick. But surprise, nothing is sticking. We're supposed to look to our political infrastructure for stability, but our Canadian leadership feels hollow. No matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on, chances are that you feel the same way. Like our leadership is disconnected, asleep at the wheel at a time when we really, really, really need them. I've been looking for inspiration in the political landscape for a while. And well, can someone tell me what rock it's hiding under? 
because I really would like to know. Take the Conservative Party, for example. Since the beginning of their leadership race, they've been taking shots at each other. Like, our Conservative politicians are literally subtweeting each other. Just last Wednesday, we had a Conservative leadership debate where only three-fifths of the candidates showed up. And it's not just the Conservatives who can't seem to get their leadership in check. Elizabeth May is back. After a few years of rejecting the idea of a return, she's back after a few years of Green Party infighting, internal chaos during and after the departure of previous Green Party leader, Annamie Paul. And if you're confused about all of this, so am I. <laughs> and then there's the Liberals and NDP. Jagmeet Singh was made leader in a wave of love and courage, but I don't know if he's proven himself as an effective opposition leader. And Justin Trudeau and his cohort, well, they talk a big game, but how much have they actually delivered? So politics is just continues to be a big roller coaster. And maybe it's not the answer. Maybe we're looking for leadership in all the wrong places. And that's what I want to talk to all of you about. Jessica, why does it seem like Canadian political leadership is struggling to meet this very chaotic moment? What's that saying uh, that everyone loves dropping once in a while? Uh, may you not live in interesting times. <laughs> and I think for a lot of our political brass and leadership who cut their teeth and built their credentials, came up during, you know, more or less uninteresting times. And then they find themselves within COVID and, you know, the general, let's say, populist movements. Uh, there's a lot of things going on around the world, a lot of different pressures, and they weren't necessarily trained for this. Uh, and it's showing. And so you're seeing a fall of the old guard of sorts. I think a perfect example is actually like Jason Kenney. Like there, there was a point in time where people thought Jason Kenney was invincible. Uh, this guy was an inevitable uh, prime minister of this country. Probably one day he'll be general secretary of the United Nations. Like this guy couldn't be stopped. Like there's a certain point where he, the ceiling is just way too high and the guy will keep going. The point being though, even he fell. And so everyone is vulnerable. Um, you mentioned Jagmeet Singh. You know, he, he came in as the hip and cool guy. But now all the young folks are moving away from the NDP. If you look at, you know, recent polling, uh, it's just, it's just anything that these guys did to get to the point where they are now is no longer relevant. Um, and not everyone has evolved with the times. I guess what kind of evolution do we need to bridge from there to here where we are now? Riley? Ooh, I'll solve the problem <laughs> of... <laughs> do it. That's what we're talking about. Leadership. <laughs> Um, you know, I was thinking about this. First of all, I really agree. Not to say that there weren't problems in other periods where like leaders had to be leading, but that there was at least I feel like some bit of a handbook there or a guideline of being like, oh, yeah, you do these things, you'll you'll get these things. And then it was like, oh, we're in the midst of many apocalypses at once. And all handbooks fell to the wayside. But I was also thinking about this. And perhaps this is the angle for solutions for me, at least. I don't know about you folks, but my civic education growing up was also like the only way to hold politicians accountable, the only way to exercise your democratic voice was through voting. And then if voting fails, like you're just kind of effed, you know, and we know that voting fails and we know that voting, especially in this country, is, is imperfect. And so then people also feel really apathetic because they also have no education about what other democratic avenues are available to them. Some people do, you know, you see some people like protesting, showing up, rallying, doing all of that sort of work. But I certainly wouldn't say that that's the majority of Canadians. And the unfortunate thing about it is, is I also don't have faith that our public education system or our governments are going to teach us anytime soon how to do that other type of organizing outside of election time. And so that's something that really has to be mobilized, I think, by people 
people on the ground. And it's something Canadians have to break through that like little bubble of, you know, what I think is is very rightfully depressingness to find those resources to be able to seek that education for themselves and invest in it. But that's something, of course, that's easier said than done. I like that we're only a few minutes into this conversation and it's already existential. We've talked about how politicians aren't ready for this moment. They're not trained for it. And now we're talking about how the system sucks because we're not educated enough about it. Drew, way in here. How do we make better political leaders in our society or make a better political system that, you know, feels more inspirational and effective? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the million dollar question. And admittedly, if I had the answer, I would probably be in charge, I feel like. (laughs) So I was sort of thinking a bit about this already kind of at like an existential abstract level. Like what is good leadership? Because it seems like we have many examples of bad leadership, but it's hard to think of like what is like what makes a good leader? So to me, I guess thinking about it, it's like good leadership is like, I'm going to really butcher this topographical metaphor, but it's like a good leader is someone who brings up the rear rather than like pulls people behind them. So it's like seeing where people are going even if they don't necessarily see where they're going themselves and sort of like helping push them there. So a good leader is like neither a puppet or a puppeteer um, as much as like it's their job to uh, metabolize, synthesize, prioritize and like operationalize not only like the many confounding and occasionally conflicting demands and needs of the people that they're serving, but to like also articulate it into like a coherent and compelling vision. More specifically, in in my opinion, like a good leader is somebody who like builds the capacity for the people that support them to like also have that kind of agency and become leaders themselves rather than creating dependence on the leader. I think a big problem in this country is that like in each political party here, it's increasingly difficult to tell what the parties even want, what the members even want, like what Canadians want this country to be and how to do it. I mean, the Conservatives are a good sort of maybe the easy example because they're actively having this kind of existential wrangling in the party between like embracing the kind of convoy faction, which is really just like the the most like the latest iteration of this like really long standing kind of reactionary populism that's like been a feature of Canadian politics since at least the 1960s, arguably longer, but like that's a whole episode. <laughs> Um, or this kind of like more socially conservative kind of like liberalism or like what, you know, the sort of like the blue liberal red Tory stuff. They're trying to figure that out. And like, there's no sort of like clear consensus within that party about like what they want to do and how to do it. And like, let alone where that will translate to like the rest of Canada. It feels like politics is more about identity and which side of the spectrum or which aspect of like the circle you lie on. I wonder, and and Jessica, and you're running for office. So I'd be curious to hear where you're at in your head about this is like, should it be about governance in the end and not necessarily about like, you know, what aspect of the party or the left or the right do you represent? Yeah, I was like listening to this conversation. I'm like, this is like philosophy kind of 101. <laughs> what, what is the good? I think I'm learning about Plato again. Like what, what's a good leader? And have like these, uh, these lofty kind of conversations about what that looks like. The reality is, is that people's relationship with their political representation and their leadership in a political or, or governance sense is, is a very emotional one. Uh, This is a relationship that exists between every single resident in this country with the government. There's not supposed to be, kind of using Pierre Polyev's language here, like there's not supposed to be any kind of gatekeepers in between that. And so the expectations are different and the disappointments are different uh, because there's a sense of direct relationship between the two, which has been missing uh, for a very long time. 
And I think when we talk to people on the ground or you know, not just like in the sense that I'm running, like even before when kind of more of our activist uh, cred and some of the grassroots stuff we've done in the past, I think the biggest disappointment people have with politicians is that they feel that it's typically the politician speaking down to the voter or to the resident and trying to explain that this is what's good and this is the direction we need to take and not necessarily the other way around. Uh, and it really comes down to customer service, right? Like in, in a very basic kind of way. It's you have to hear us as residents. You have to hear what we think is the problem. Um, and, you know, bringing out consultant reports and expert reports is important, but it shouldn't come at the cost of what we feel is the problem. For example, like Pierre Polyev does very well. He's popular for a reason uh, is because he's kind of tapped into that angst and makes it seem at least that he's speaking on behalf of folks that are disenfranchised or folks that feel like they're not being listened to or heard. You know, we spoke about the convoy, which is in, in many ways and in, in shapes and forms, incredibly problematic uh, elements involved in a lot of that. Uh, but again, there was a, a polling done uh, during the height of the convoy, which I think was like 30% of folks align with uh, some form or another of the message from the convoy. And so it's not necessarily as fringe as people like to think it is. You know, people are complex. People do not necessarily think on party lines, but that doesn't mean identity politics is not a part of you know, the fabric of this very nation from day one. You know, people like to think it's folks that, you know, look like me, you know, from minority communities that play identity politics. Identity politics has been the bread and butter of, of the way this country has operated from its very start and it continues to be that way. And so you can't strip that away from people and kind of how they see themselves and their place in the world. But where, where politicians fail is that people do not feel that they're being heard or listened to and that they're actually being spoken to instead. Uh, and that really, really irks. Uh, just your regular folks that are trying to just survive every day. But in these increasingly divisive times, and I know I'm being broad, but that's how else would you describe it, right? Maybe good political leadership should be just being able to navigate those heightened emotions and 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 being above it and, and providing a solution. And I know that sounds idealistic and very West Wing of me, but Shouldn't that be the case, Riley? Like if, if we're really going to come down to actionable items on, on how political leadership can improve and be better prepared for the future of these times, because the problems aren't going to go away, shouldn't that be the thought process? Yeah, I mean, I guess in an ideal world, for sure. I think like tapping into that anger bit, though, like that anger comes from a place of urgency for people, right? Like what spurs that sense of urgency actionably might be different from person to person, but it's still this very much like, oh my God, we need answers. Oh my gosh, like we need help. And like, I'm mad that you're not doing it. Maybe this other person will do it. And it feels very desperate and reactive in terms of the things from people on the ground. And I think that politicians know that, um, or at least uh, the consultants that they respond to know that. Um, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and so like, it, we've gotten to a place, I think, too, where it's like, no longer like you have to say, like, I will lead you to that place of solution for a better future of safety and liberation and a good country and all those things. All you have to be is like, better than the status quo, like, or currently or the other person. Um, or want to burn the status quo down. Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't have to have those big picture goals, I don't think. Um, I, I, I don't know. Or the answers to all our problems, apparently. Yeah, apparently, right? 
Um, which is very different. Like, what's it called? I'm picturing like 15 year old me who was like, I'm gonna be an MP one day, crushed at this notion. <laughs> but like for me, then the question becomes, how do we get people out of survival mode on the ground and that they're always running on that sense of urgency in order that like we could have a conversation about like, oh, what should we be demanding of our politicians in a bigger way? And how can we get them there? And all of those types of things. And as we are in many apocalypses, to get people out of survival mode is harder and harder and harder. And I feel like I said this a bit in my first answer, but like, I feel like the grassroots is increasingly like our only hope. <laughs> like, it's one thing, of course, everybody knows that there are problems. It's the only place I have found in certain factions within, I think, are better than others. You know, the grassroots, I guess, isn't a monolith either. But it's like to identify the problem, identify a solution and for what purpose. I think that has been really uplifting to me. Like, it's the only spaces I've had where people articulated, no, this is our dream of what we want our communities to look like and our futures to look like and all of those things. And like working backwards from that point is not something I think we're doing at the highest institutional level. I mean, I don't think our demands are that insane, right? We just want leaders who will engage meaningfully and like human beings with complicated issues, bring people together work through them, really show us that they're working through them, even if you can't find the solution, because at the end of the day, they are humans. Like we get it. Like no one person has the answer to all our problems in these times, but at least prove to us that you're capable of engaging with it constructively. And you don't even see that. That's where 15 year old me is, is crushed because I'm like, I thought at least it would feel meaningful. You know, when I watch politics on TV or I hear a press conference, it would feel meaningful. It would feel like they care and they're working as hard as they can, but it doesn't feel like that either. And, and, and that's why we're having this existential conversation. Yeah. Look, if I, if I could just chime in here quickly, um, cause I think Riley brought a good point up and that the grassroots and kind of like third party advocacy is unfortunately probably the most robust and effective democratic tool we have. And I think the actual issue there is how does governance work in a, in a really simple way you know, you have your bureaucracy, you have your administration, which is kind of dealing with your day-to-day -day functioning and ensuring things are getting done, government is operating, services are being rendered, you know, the reports are being written, an analysis is being done, you know, they're responding to inquiries from committees and from politicians and what have you. The break, though, is that the politicians kind of forget and our political leaders forget what their role is in that equation right? Their role is not to be the smartest people in the room. That's not their role. Their role is to be folks that are connected with the grassroots, with residents, and taking input from residents, going back to the bureaucrats and asking the hard questions, right? And, and kind of directing the bureaucracy and the administration in a certain direction that is responsive to residents. And so at the end of the day, you know, we kind of treat residents as like an end user of sorts, rather than the actual fundamental foundation of how our democracy is supposed to operate. And the break is that politicians kind of tend to flip that on its head. They're kind of working with bureaucracy. They're trying to get answers that they like, then turn around and try to dictate it downwards towards residents that this is the path we're going to take. And for a lot of residents that, you know, folks that kind of make up this country, that bothers them. You know, why is grassroots organizations or third-party organizations have become so effective and so influential and kind of remain one of the most like trusted kind of institutions in, in our country is because they're doing the hard work of talking to residents, right? Like they're doing the hard work of actually engaging residents and, and working with folks that live here 
so that politicians hear them. And you can tell, right? Like when, when a politician comes from, like, let's say, a grassroots community background, you can tell. Right? Like you can tell they they they've they've made they made themselves into the, the people they are because they spent time hustling in the trenches. And uh, those ones, those are the ones that usually stand out the most. And it's not necessarily, you know, the guy with the fancy degrees and the fancy background, and the fancy job titles that before becoming a politician, it's, it's usually the people that actually shed a lot of blood, sweat and tears on the ground working with folks. And people will celebrate those politicians, they'll celebrate those leaders, they'll hoist them on their shoulders and say, vote for this person. And that's what's really been missing from a lot of our leadership. Yeah, it's funny. Like one of my favorite questions to ask all of my friends lately, because I am a nerd and I am this person is, is there a leader in the world that inspires you? And no one can think of an answer. Like no one has a name off the top of their head. And I think that's worrying. And I don't understand why the political system isn't more worried about that, that, you know, because it all adds up, right? Like if you're, if you prove yourself to be an inspirational leader, you also have to follow up, right? And continue to translate that inspiration into meaningful, actionable things that continue to make you an inspiration. And that's how the political system becomes good, at least in my opinion. And that's, I think, all I really want from the political system is is meaningful, constructive things. And we're not seeing that in any one person, uh, or it's very difficult to find that in the political landscape globally or in Canada. Um, Drew, take us home. Where, where, what are you thinking? What do you want the listeners to be thinking? Boy, um, um, like it does really sort of come back to a point of like, we are kind of in a period of generalized crisis where all of the things that we assumed would work forever are rapidly proving themselves to not work. Uh, things are actually much less stable than we thought. And in like many important respects, like, yeah, we're all here looking for like meaningful political action, but we're looking for meaningful political action in a world where like shared meaning, let alone meaning at all, it's like increasingly difficult to find. Like it's really fracturing apart. We're not even speaking the same languages. Like a good leader sort of like engages with residents to sort of like get everybody involved and, and sort of like, you know, make our communities better for everybody. Everybody's basically looking for like agency so that the things that they think matter, the things that they do matter, and the things that they tell their politicians matter will actually get done. The problem is that in addition to the fact that we no longer even agree on like what the problem is and what to do about it, it's also that the ability of political leaders to do things, let alone like decide what they're going to do, are like getting smaller as the things that need to be tackled. Like the problems just keep getting bigger and more complicated and our ability to address them is getting smaller. Like, how do we square the circle? How do we solve, like, the human psychodrama that allows us all to live together in a comfortable and, like, flourishing environment? That may be slightly above my pay grade. You're saying we can't just hold hands around a fire and just feel as one and act as one? (laughs) Tragically not. I think Sigmund Freud actually, for all his pessimism, believed that eventually humanity might get to the point where we can all live together happily. But he also thought that it would be the pace of, like, a glacier. You know, my favorite politics story is that in ancient Rome, the Caesars had a slave whose task was to whisper in their ear that they were mortal. So there was just someone reminding like Julius Caesar, you are mortal, you are mortal, you are mortal, to remind him that he can't be a power hungry person and to remind him that he was of the people and he had to serve the same people that he was of. And I feel like in today's day and age, we we should bring that back, but we should tell politicians, you are not a robot. You are not a robot. You are not a robot. 
and also do something, do something, do something. I, I think I frightened Jessica who's running for office, but I, I do think there needs to be like subconscious reminders that this is a really important vehicle that they have uh, control of that they can use to make a lot of good in the world that they're not using well. I will always remain the humble, approachable, <laughs> and accessible man that I am today. You heard it first on the back bench. <laughs> Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Riley? The world's on fire. <laughs> My point of order is that climate change is scary. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know about where... where big are if you? true, Riley. Big <laughs> if true. <laughs> I don't know where everybody is. It's so hot. It's so hot. Newfoundland's on fire. And then somebody said something to me that like shook me to my core the other day. They were like, oh, I was complaining about the heat. And they were like, oh, well, this is probably the coldest summer you're going to have for the rest of your life. And I was like, oh, <laughs> had a moment, you know? So I just can't think about much else. That's my point of order. <laughs> I hope that, uh, can we fix that? Listen, not a point of order, but politicians, if you're listening, <laughs> climate action now, maybe now, like yesterday, right this second, we're just waiting and sweating out here. <laughs> Madam Speaker, a point of order. What is your point of order, Jess Gren? Can we talk about how terrible hockey culture is in this country? And the necessary reckoning that is required to have a hard restart on it. Just recently, you know, Hockey Canada has been under the spotlight uh, for sexual assault scandals that have been longstanding and kind of pushed aside and cast aside for far too long. Uh, and it just speaks to um, what is something that we as a country uphold as a, a core part of our cultural identity is in need of, again, a hard reckoning. Not a point of order, but why can't things just, it's not, it shouldn't be this hard. Just make everything good again. Mega, make everything good again. Mega. Make everything good again. I'm writing that down as we speak. You're welcome, Jessica. I want full credit. That's a million dollar slogan. <laughs> Spoken like a true politician. <laughs> Came up on that on my own. All right, Drew, what do you got? I want to caveat this by saying that I spent the last three weeks totally immersed in writing coverage of like a lesbian convention that happened in rural Newfoundland like three weeks ago. And it was amazing. And it's the only thing I've been focused on because I try to get all these articles out. They're like 13,000 words across three pieces. It's been like totally all consuming to the point that I literally have only vaguely paid attention to like anything else like around me. Like to the point that like I found out that Newfoundland was on fire yesterday and I live here. <laughs> And it's my job to cover the news. So all this to say, that's the only thing I can really tell you about what's happening in Rolling Newfoundland right now, which was a month ago, there was a really wonderful, like, queer homecoming in, like, a town called Brodkov, which was invaded by lesbians 30 years ago. And, like, it does, it just writes itself. It's incredible. I'm, I'm going to offer a solution to Jaskarin's problem through my point of order. So, Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Drew? Maybe... 
since hockey culture may not be fixable, <laughs> we should all just pivot to baseball. Because I started watching the Jays this summer, and that shit slaps. Like, baseball rocks, actually. And I'm really upset that people have been keeping this from me for, like, my whole life. Because, like, it's wicked to just sit down and watch, like, Vladdy hit dingers. Like, that is amazing. Why are we not talking more about this as a country? Um, Not a point of order, but I have a two-part response. Number one, thank you for another sports heavy and climate heavy point of order section on the back bench. And number two, honestly, we focus on the wrong sports in this country. Like football and baseball is where it's at. Like, can we just get it together and focus on the right sports? Thank you. So Canada prides itself on immigration, but we can't seem to tackle its backlog, which has jumped to a staggering 2.7 million applicants. That number has nearly doubled over the past year and nearly tripled since the start of the pandemic. This backlog is devastating for many people hoping to come to Canada for safety and to build a better life. For example, the Canada-Ukraine Authorization for Emergency Travel, which Canada introduced in March to provide Ukrainians with the opportunity to relocate, has received 362,664 applications since March 17, causing its backlog to swell. Meanwhile, over 105 Iranians say their dream of coming to Canada was erased just to clear a processing backlog. And the federal government is no longer taking new referrals for the special immigration program for Afghans who were previously employed by the Canadian Armed Forces or government. Besides the fact that they're less than halfway to their goal of bringing in 40,000 Afghans to Canada. All of this is happening amid a nationwide labor shortage and several provincial immigration ministers say they want more control over the immigration process. Ministers from Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba called for the ability to select more immigrants with the skills they needed the most. According to the letter, the provinces say they know their local economies best and can choose newcomers to Canada who have the, quote, greatest chance of success. The provinces do actually have a constitutional right to request more control. Our constitution outlines how the federal government has control over immigrant admissions, but it still defines immigration as one of the few policy areas in Canada that is under the shared federal-provincial control. Now, the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act also mandates that the federal government works closely with provinces and territories to support regional, economic, and social objectives. The province of Quebec has its own immigration department since 1968. So this is not an unprecedented ask, but is it good or reasonable? Experts like David Chalk, an immigration lawyer in Montreal, projects that shifting immigration authority to the provinces would mean large infrastructure changes and new problems like even longer processing times and increased costs for applicants. And these are the problems the current Quebec model already faces. Quebec permanent residency applicants have to pay $900 on top of federal processing fees, for example. So I guess the big question is, Drew, what are your first impressions of this proposal? My, my, as a true Libra, my first my first impression is, well, I can definitely see both sides of this. There are definitely pros and cons. <laughs> like, I know it's like I'm mostly familiar, like, surprise, I'm mostly familiar with the Newfoundland Labrador context. So that's the one that I can speak to. I know that, like, sort of like vastly scaling up immigration numbers is like a very high priority for this government. They take it very seriously. And uh, like they have also been pushing for more control. 
I mean, like, the premier's sort of gone on record saying, you know, like, he would like the, the provincial government here to function basically as the, like, the fancy immigration lawyer that you call to get all the stuff done really fast. Um, they want to, like, streamline this as much as possible, make it as easy as possible for people to come here. And it seems so far to have been working and that the, the numbers have gone up. But at the same time, like, it does make me a little wary when I start thinking about, okay, the provinces want to start picking and choosing where people are coming from that fit well with the right skills. Because, yeah, I mean, if you're thinking like a state here, you don't think of immigrants or refugees as human beings. You think of them as like an economic engine, which is very much the way that the province here and I would imagine elsewhere thinks about it which is where you start running into problems. There's also like the, the point about like it, it may become a more grueling process if it devolves to provincial control too far because yeah, there is nothing that the provinces do that is better funded than anything the federal government does. And the federal government is not particularly well funded or well run in this area. Broadly speaking, I think it's more good than bad that the provinces want like more people for more places to come here faster. This is less of a problem in, like, bigger and more high-functioning places in Canada. But in this province, anyway, like, we're really good at getting people to come here. We're just really bad at getting them to stay. Because then it becomes less of a question about, like, how do we get immigrants? And more like, how do we just keep people here generally? Which means you need social services, you need public transit, you need things for them to do, you need jobs. So, you know, like, how do you make this a place that someone who has lived in a nicer part of the world may want to stay in? That's the big question. Drew, your truth as a Libra is the crux of the problem, right? It's between equal access and equal opportunity. And Jessica, will this provincial proposal to have more control facilitate that better than the system that we have currently, do you think? Well, I think the theory is that the more you localize decisions, uh, the better and more responsive it is to local needs. Like that's the theory. I think by and large for a lot of folks that are pro-immigration and a lot of folks from communities that hail from let's say new Canadian communities, tend to think and feel that the federal liberals have their best interest at heart. I don't know if they necessarily feel the same way when it comes to, let's say, the federal conservatives. Now, that changes, obviously, when you get to the provincial level. I think it's a little more complex and dynamic. But the status quo is just not working. Like I, I think we can all agree on that. Uh, the backlog is incredible. Uh, it's the number one thing people complain about in communities like uh, the one I'm in right now. Um, and it's an issue that's top of mind. I think when you look at the labor shortage, that is a very real crisis, especially here in Ontario, uh, especially in like manufacturing hubs like you know Peel that I'm in or, or in and around the 905. Like there, there's a strong demand for labor that just doesn't exist, and it's very specific demands on labor. And so there is definitely a need. I think at the current pace, what things are going. You know, provinces at a proportional kind of rate, it's fairly small, like how much of a say or how much ability they have to dictate the type of immigrants that they get into their communities. And again, you could contrast this with Quebec, which I believe it's like almost 50% of the immigrants that are arriving to the province, Quebec, the province of Quebec has a hand in. So it's not fair to ask other provinces to just hold back and no, like it just, it quite frankly, just isn't. Uh, and so Again, it kind of deals with that whole alienation that a lot of folks feel, including in the West, where most, most of these provinces that, that wrote to the minister uh, hail from, that there are demands that need to be filled and that provinces should have a greater say. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable what's being asked. What is unreasonable currently is the backlog and the labor shortages we do face. I mean, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that increasing bureaucracy basically slows things down rather than speeds them up. And Riley, I'm curious, like, do you think this is an effective way to navigate that? 
Boof. I mean, I'll just preface this by saying any policy analyst listening to me right now, this is going to be not helpful advice to you. But (laughs) I will say that immigration is one of those policy sectors that like demoralizes me the least. So I find I actually know the least about it because nothing is more reminiscent to me or just so clear of Canada's ongoing like colonial evilness than, um, you know, in the immigration sector, deciding who can come in, what education we think is valid, what kin is valid is just so much of Canada's colonialism in your face all the time. And so I find it particularly brutal, but also, and this is me like only theorizing. So again, in practice for the policy analysts, maybe this is not your your part now. Can we decolonize now? You know, like no one is illegal on stolen land, like all of these things. I think that there is some, like if we're looking perhaps longer term than just, you know, should the provinces or the federal government, um, that in order to actually truly fix this problem, it comes down to like the colonial architecture of this place and where power resides and who is deemed valuable for what means. And that's where I think that we should actually probably have the greatest solidarity efforts between Indigenous and immigrant communities that I think is something that really needs to be developed far more than I think it has. And I think it's also been deliberate that we we don't have as many conversations amongst each other as, you know, we definitely should have because of how entwined our oppressions are. But all I can think about is that in a world where Indigenous people were authorities of their own jurisdictions, where they had their lands and their resources, I don't know a philosophy that I've learned from certainly my people, but also any other Indigenous people. I've come across that would say that any of this is acceptable, that we get to deem who comes in or out, all of those sorts of things. So yeah, I don't know, maybe just a a push to think about things also in a more grand way. I assume we all agree that we need to address the backlog before we even consider this, right? Like, will the provinces having more power address the backlog at all? Jessica, you've worked in the immigration space longer than anyone here. Do you think that will help? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like anyone's figured out how to get rid of the backlog other than like blanket canceling every application, like restarting everything again. And that sucks. And so it's <laughs> there's obviously a need. There's obviously a demand at this point. Just what, throw more resources at it. It doesn't seem complicated to me that we just make this a bigger priority. And how much are we actually directing here you know, funding wise to get it done? And so... You know, the provinces and the feds can bicker amongst themselves over how this looks and what shape and form it takes and how, how they think they can solve the problems of both, yes, the backlog and the labor shortage. But we can't forget like the human cost that's involved with coming over here and starting anew and how much people risk for just the opportunity. There's no guarantees when they get here just for the opportunity, how much they're risking. Uh, so the onus is on us to kind of figure that out. Make everything good again, including immigration. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right, on that note, that's the backbench. But before you all go, I have some news. Next week will be my last episode as host of the backbench. I will have more mushy things to say, I'm sure. But I just wanted to put it out there. This has been the most fun. I love hanging out with you guys and learning from you and and having deep existential, complicating conversations about politics. And I look forward to doing that in other places. And until then, where can the listeners of the backbench follow all of your works? Jessica? First things first, a uh, incredible travesty that you're leaving this show. They can find me at Jaskar and Sandu underscore on Twitter. Probably the easiest way to get me. Drew, where do people read this amazing story you've told us about today? It's very joy to see you go. This has been quite wonderful and a lot of fun. 
So with the sentimentality out of the way, uh, <laughs> yes, anybody who would like to read um, a wonderful, immersive photo feature essay about the uh, Come Home Queer Festival in uh, rural Newfoundland can find it at theindependent.ca. And otherwise, they can find me on Twitter, where I'm at Newfoundland, which is like Newfoundland, but with my name. And last but not least, Riley, where do people follow you? I also have to say that if I had known at this point this you're going to announce you're leaving, my point of order would have been that we're going to miss you. People can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Riley Yes No Maybe. I also have a podcast coming out in the next month or so called Red Surgeon. So if you want to hear me talk about conversations happening in and around Indigenous communities, uh, Indigenous liberation movements, that's where you'll find me. If you have questions, concerns, rants, you can email the show backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work at the Narwhal. This episode was produced by Noor Azrie with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outhorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.